The bad news is that we are predisposed to violence in all its forms. But God has made a way of redemption to restore what? To restore our peace. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm actually the ministry operations pastor, the MOP, which works for my job description. My executive administrator, Katie, calls herself the bucket. Um, I don't know what that stands for, but uh, I get the idea. Uh, Our teaching pastor, Tom, will be back next Sunday, and our uh, lead worship pastor, Ryan, uh, will be back next Sunday as well. But man, amazing what our worship team uh, does to lead us in worship. I get this text from Brad, the leader, at 6.30 this morning. Uh, It says, hey man, the whole worship team's here. The Holy Spirit just showed up, and all we need you to do is come and bring us home. (laughs) a lot of pressure man so I said you know what you know I'll come too and we'll all let the Holy Spirit lead us home so yeah for 2016 we want peace we want peace at this church we believe this is a church of peace because we follow after a God of peace and um, our theme for this year is living in the rhythm of grace that picture is a reflection of the way things ought to be it is a picture of beauty and peace living in this rhythm of grace that if you've been around very long, you know that we've been talking about. And so here's the deal. Every Sunday when we've come to church, we've tried to practice this rhythm for a few years now. You're probably sick of hearing it, some of you, but every Sunday, here's what should happen to you in this church or any church you go to. This ought to happen to you and in you and through you. First, you should see God. Every Sunday, you should see the God of heaven and of earth. And in the light of that glory, it should expose for you as a gift to you your deficiencies, your struggles, the places where you need that God of glory to cleanse you and make you whole again. But then, rushing in to that honesty should be the rest in His grace. Should be... The fact that you remember that He has sent you a Redeemer and that He has already filled that hole in your soul. He has already restored you to Him. And as He's changed and transformed you by revealing His glory and by exposing your struggles and flooding in with His grace and redemption, He now prepares you for the purpose for which you were made. To be a Redeemer. To be a person of peace. That ought to happen to you every Sunday when you come to church. But here's the deal. And this is what we're about this year. We also believe that that which happens to you every Sunday should explode outside of the walls of this church and outside of the hour and a half or whatever that you sit here into your everyday life. Every moment, every hour, every day, every week. It should be life in this rhythm and pattern formed by it. Remembering God, being honest with yourself, resting in His grace, receiving His assurance, receiving His wisdom, and going out and doing what it says as a Redeemer. We want to infuse that into your soul. So that's why we've made this personal worship journal that we've asked you to take every week that has not only today's service in it, but it has the passage for next week and a process through which you can begin to start the conversation with the Holy Spirit that He will complete with you next Sunday when Tom preaches on that passage. That's what we want you to do. This year, we want to be all about that so that we're formed by this rhythm of grace. And so, several weeks ago, I, one of your pastors, went out looking for peace. 
and this rhythm of grace. And I had been busy. I'd had a busy week. I'd gotten behind in my personal worship. But Saturdays are like my safe haven. This is when I, I usually get up early in the morning and I go to the beach right around sunrise. And um, this particular day, I really wanted to be alone and I wanted to be with the Lord, just me and him. And so I, I found a particularly secluded part of the beach, nobody around, no reason for anybody to be around. And I parked it, I sat down on the, the ramp of a lifeguard stand and I pull out my Bible and I pull out my journal and the sun is you know, warm on my face and the birds are flying and it's beautiful and I begin to read the passage and I'm not making this up. I look up and a woman literally rises out of the ocean. I kid you not. A woman fully dressed in a dress comes out of the ocean, walks out and walks straight up the beach to me like she had to work at it. She had to climb up the dune to get to me. Walks straight up to me and says, what are you doing? (laughs) And I say, you you know, usually if I'm in a bad mood, I'll say I'm reading the Bible because that usually shuts it right down. But I, I say, I'm journaling. And she says, oh, really, what are you journaling about? Well, I read my Bible, and then I write down thoughts on, uh, on what, what I read in my journal. And she says, oh, really? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? So I say, okay, Lord, I get it. All right. So I start to tell her, and I get this much out. I believe, and then she floods in with everything that she believes about everything in the world and in the universe from the beginning of time. She starts rattling off all these beliefs and I'm trying to like intersect and intervene and get, and I can't get in and she's going and going. And then out of the ocean rises her boyfriend. (laughs) And he comes up soaking wet to me to join the conversation. Hey, Sue. Hi, John. Who's this? Oh, he's a priest, and he's telling me about Jesus. And actually, she was telling me about everything else. And so he says, oh, really? He's telling you about Jesus? I got a question. So then he starts to ask questions, like rapid-fire questions with no time to answer. You know what I mean? What about this? What about that? And then she's firing shots at me, and she's answering his questions, and she won't let me answer. She's answering. And so he starts getting frustrated with her, and I start getting frustrated with her. And finally, he takes my side, and he says, look, Sue, can you please just give me a second to ask him some questions? And so finally, she relents, and she admits she'd been drinking. This was not a surprise. And she kind of very purposely walks off a certain amount of paces, like maybe 50 paces. She stops, she turns around, she stands like this, and she keeps saying things. She just keeps lobbing bombs of truth into the conversation. But she's far enough away, he takes me, he turns me, he, he kind of walks me over so I can look at the rising sun, and I swear, this is what he says, he says, and he's like probably 23, he goes, I've studied everything, and Star Wars is real. <laughs> and he lays out this worldview and theology of Star Wars with midi-chlorians and dark, the force and the dark side and the heavenly, the angels and the demons and all this stuff and sort of this mixture of Kabbalah and Scientology and just sort of everything all mixed together and he's just laying it down. Man. And I am just standing there just stunned, just like, you know, just like somebody's just beating me. And, and finally, he goes through his whole spiel, and he just relents, and he finishes, and he stops. And I didn't know what to do with it. I had gone through every file. I'd gone through all my seminary classes, every experience I'd ever had, all of my evangelism explosion training. Nothing. No, no peg to grab onto in this thing. So finally, I just go, eh, here's what I believe. 
And I just, I walked him through the rhythm of grace. I said, I believe that there's a God who is eternal. And I believe that he created all things perfectly and beautifully good. And we were in perfect fellowship with him. But we rebelled against him and fell away from him. But even in the midst of that, he entered into our suffering and he made a way of redemption through his son, Jesus, who was a real person, but God in the flesh. And through his son, he redeemed me and he gave me my purpose in life, which is to become a redeemed redeemer, to do that. And that's why I live. And this guy, soaking wet, goes, Dude, that is awesome! And then he gives me this big, wet, long, too long, too close hug. And he, I mean, like all in. And then he, he, he gives me his phone number and he asks me what church I'm at. And, he does all, and then his girlfriend comes back over. She approaches the scene again. And she has now settled down. And she's humble and she's repentant and she's apologetic. Sorry, I disrespected you. And then she pulls me in um, and just tight, too tight with another wet hug and holds me too long and then she kisses me on the cheek just too like that you know for too long and and she releases me and then she does this she goes and she was spanish because you had to hear it this way she goes you don't even know what i just did to you i gave you an angel so apparently i have an angel but here's the deal. I chuckle at that. And there, was, there were some serious parts to that story as I learned about who these people were and what their struggles were. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you what they were doing. They were doing the same thing you and I do. They were trying to figure out life. They were trying to put together all of their experiences and all of the things they'd learned and all of their wounds and all of the, the hopeful expectations that they were supposed to have. They were trying to put them all together and anchor them to something bigger than themselves. They were just trying to figure out life. And I get it. I get the Star Wars thing. I get why that's so appealing. I, I went to Star Wars in 1977. I probably saw it ten times. It was a classic. I went yesterday twice to see the new one. I get it. But you know why that story and stories like it are so beloved? Because they tell a classic tale of the struggle between good and evil and how normal people try to sort it out. So I get it. I get the Star Wars analogy, but the problem is, what do you hook it to? What do you hook your life and your experiences to? If it's your own opinion, if it's the, the words of men, those things move and change. This world is fickle. The world is broken. Well, we believe there's someone to connect our lives to. We believe that struggle between good and evil is still the same as it was from the beginning of time, but we believe that there is a God who will ultimately defeat evil. And He will restore peace in us and in all of His creation. He'll restore the rhythm of grace. He'll restore shalom, a just, beautiful peace. And that's what we anchor ourselves to, and that's why this year we want to not only live out that rhythm of grace on Sunday mornings, but we want it to explode out of the walls of this sanctuary and into our everyday lives as we practice this rhythm. So today, as we enter into this passage, Genesis chapters 5 and 6, and continue in this story, this redemptive story, by the way, is 
what we're doing right now in this season of sermons, we're walking through the, the redemptive story of history that began with remembering God and creation and has now exposed us to the fall of man and the corruptions that that's caused. So as we continue in Genesis chapters 5 and 6 today, I did something that I hope will be a little helpful to you. I'm actually going to walk through this passage as my personal worship. Because what I've done with this is the exact same thing that you can do with it in your life. And in the big, big picture, an overview of Genesis chapters 5 and chapter 6 is that there are sort of three sections, okay? The first section is a genealogy. The second section is a descent into chaos, a world that descends into chaos, the consequences of the fall. And then the third section is God's judgment through the story of the flood, where he provides a redeemer. It's the story of the rhythm of grace. So what I want you to do is exactly what we want you to do each week as you go through these passages. So the first thing we do on the first day is we make some general observations. So I'm just going to grab a few little things that might have been of interest to you. And, and please know that you have the same access as we do to the places that we would learn more about this. Reformation Study Bible, the notes in there, great resource. We have some in the back. You can buy it on Amazon. Uh, great resource. You can get the same commentary that Tom uses to prepare his messages every week, the same commentary that I use today. And you can work through these things yourself. But I want to pull a few things out that as you study this passage may have been a curiosity or a confusion to you. The first important thing I want you to see is in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. He says, this is the book of generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Now, we see these genealogies, and a lot of times we just blow through them or skip over them, but the reality is they're very important because here's what they do. By the way, they, they're not comprehensive. They don't list every person ever born. You'll notice that often it will say, and, other, and they had other sons, and they had other daughters. But what they do is they connect these generations, these lineages, to whom? To God Himself. To the God of the universe in whose image we were created. And by doing that, what they say is, all of the stuff that applies to God and applies to Adam, applies to His lineage and applies to you. So as Christians, we have a struggle with any scenario that would separate us directly from creation by God in his image. Any creation narrative that would establish us as equal to all other things in creation, equal to animals, equal to plants, equal to the earth, we would reject that because we were created uniquely in the image of God with all of the awesome responsibilities of servant-hearted stewardship of his creation that he bestowed on us in that role. Another observation, chapter 5, verse 5. Thus all the days of Adam lived were 930 years and he died. I pulled that one out because for a lot of people, as soon as they read that, they're like, oh, this is a myth. This is like the Epic of Gilgamesh or, the Sand or whatever other stories. But I want you to be careful with that for a couple reasons. One, um, if we try to understand this in our modern context, it is very possible that these reflect a different method of counting used by ancient Mesopotamians. It's very possible that these numbers were symbolic and simply represented long, healthy lives and things like that. But here's the fact. The fact is, a cataclysmic thing happened at the fall. And a catastrophic thing happened at the flood. And it is very possible, in fact, it's apparent, that life after the flood was a much more hostile environment than it was before. So just be careful before you throw things out, because it doesn't match your current, in the moment, today, modern day experience and understanding. Chapter 5, verse 24, it says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. 
What's going on with that? Well, what's going on with that is it says he never died. It describes a very rare supernatural fellowship with God. You need to remember that Enoch comes from that line of Seth, the godly line, the righteous line. And it says that somehow in God's divine economy, Enoch walked so closely with him that death as a consequence was not necessary for him. And as my pastor at my church growing up used to say, he said, I think that Enoch walked with the Lord so closely every day that one day the Lord said, you know what, Enoch, we're closer to my house than yours. So let's go home. He walked with God. In 525, we see something very important happen, and that's the the formation of a second line, right? We traced the line of Cain. That was the line of rebellion, the line that sought vengeance. Chapter 525, it says this, When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Now, there was a Lamech before, you remember? The Lamech that descended from Cain, he made a proclamation that he would have his vengeance in this life. But this Lamech, the second Lamech, was after the godly line of Seth. The first line had a lust for vengeance. It elevated itself to the authority of God, right? Because to feel entitled to vengeance, you have to believe that you're superior, right? You deserve retribution. This was the line of Seth, who followed after the Lord. In verses 28 and 29, it says, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. In this rhythm of grace, creation, fall, corruption, chaos, violence, hope. Lamech, one who walks with God, one who has faith in Him and His promises, one who has submitted to Him, declares for his son, dedicates his son to the possibility of being the deliverer, the seed of Eve, who would bring redemption to the world. He he dedicates him to that purpose, and so he gives him a name. The name is Noah. And you know what that name means? It means rest. Do you see the drama that's unfolding in the beginning of time? Two lines, the evil and the good, the dark side, the new hope. In chapter 6, verse 2, it says this, another observation. The sons of God were those after the line of Seth. You'll see things or hear things. They'll speculate the possibility that they were somehow divine beings. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. The sons of God were those after the line of Seth, the godly line, and the daughters of man were those after the line of Cain. So the godly saw that those after the line of Cain were attractive. And they took them as their wives as they chose. Now what's going on there? Well, here's what's important. What's important to know is that what was happening is they were beginning to intermarry the two lines. Now you hear that and you go, what's the problem with that? Are we some racist or something? Or, you know, what's going on with that? Well, here's the problem with that. The problem is that this wasn't just two different races or colors of skin. This was the line of the righteous and this was the line of rebellion. And even the righteous 
did what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They saw they were attractive. They took. And what happened is they began to do that as they began to dilute this image in them. They began to distance themselves slowly over time from their walking with the Lord. The sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And then we get into something extremely critical in this story. Chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now this passage is a deal breaker for a lot of people. They get to this point and they have two problems with it. One is they have a problem with a God who would bring judgment and condemnation on the whole earth. I mean, men, women, children, animals, plant, everything. He would just crush the whole earth because of the sins of some. Maybe even the sins of many. But surely among them there were the innocents. Surely the animals were innocent. That's one problem that people have. And the second is it would appear that this God is a God of regret. A God who makes mistakes. A God who has insufficiencies. And he grieves his own mistake, and out of his grief, he crushes his mistake. But that's not what's going on here. It's easy for us to say that now, and part of that is because we all evaluate ourselves against someone else, right? When, when I say I'm a sinner, well, I'm, but I'm not as bad as that sinner. Well, you know, uh, we have trouble in our nation, but we're not as bad as ISIS. We always compare ourselves to somebody else, but here's the problem. If I were standing on the earth in this time... This is the kind of earth that I would find because when it talks about the wickedness of man, when it talks about the word corruption that appears later, this is the definition of the word that was used in that passage. Cold-blooded infringement on the rights of others motivated by greed, self-interest, hate, often using violence or brutality. Now hear the words of what God encountered in that passage. He says this, Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We're going to talk about this more in a minute, but what God did in that moment is he intervened into the chaos and the destruction of his creation to do what? To stop it! To stop the corruption. To end the violence and to continue his work of redemption through the work of Noah and through the ark. Very important to understanding this text. What about all the animals and all the plants and all those kinds of things? Well, here's the deal. We don't fully understand this as people who were not the creator, but... This corruption apparently entered into all of the world, into the DNA of everything and all that was. It turned the economy of life against itself. It made animals even violent and oppressive in ways that we never understand. And God saw the the devastation and corruption of the earth and He brought it to an end. But what happens next? What happens next? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. God set aside a man for a purpose. And what was that purpose? It was to foreshadow the coming of the seed of Eve. It was to set aside someone, and he would do this many times in Scripture, even with flawed and broken people, and Noah was certainly that. We see that right after the flood. But to establish in them a reflections, foreshadowing of his nature and his character again, even though they weren't complete. Righteous did not mean that he was perfectly holy. It meant something very interesting. The word righteous meant that he was willing to disadvantage himself for the benefit of others. Remember the sin of Cain, the evil line? What did they do? They advantaged themselves to the disadvantage of others. Righteousness was to disadvantage himself for the benefit of others. What did it mean that he was blameless? Did it mean that he was without sin? No. And Scripture doesn't conceal that he had sin. It means that he was fully committed to abstaining from sin. He was fully committed, even as a sinful person, to abstain in as much as he was able and to seek God's grace in that. So a righteous and blameless man, Noah, lives for the sake of those around him and is fully committed to living after the nature and character of his Creator. In other words, he seeks to live the way life was when it was the way it was supposed to be. The godly line. And that leads us to the root of this story in chapter 6, verses 11 to 22. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. It's to be 300 cubits long and 50 cubits wide. And its height is to be 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons and your wife, your sons wise with them. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of birds according to their kind, and the animals according to their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, store it up, it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. That's the rhythm of grace. God doesn't leave us in our condemnation. He doesn't leave us in our destruction. He doesn't leave us to collapse on ourselves. He offers us a way of redemption. So what I want to do is I want to walk through this in our rhythm of grace. And I want to tell you what I pulled from the story. The first thing is this, as I remember God. Well, what do I see about God? I see that God is a God of peace. It is His predisposition. One of the arguments against Scripture and against the God of the Bible is that the God of the Old Testament at least is a God of violence. But don't you see, it's just the opposite. God created the world in perfect peace. 
In 2 Peter, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. To the prophet Isaiah, he says this. He says this to the nation of Israel. Long after the story of Noah, after Israel had fallen and and blown it many, many times, he says this. He says, In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. This was not a regret, an admission of a mistake on God's part when he said these words. This was a challenge to his normal predisposition to peace. And understanding that as a God of justice and a God of love, he could not let this continue. What it tells us is that when he created us, he wove himself inextricably to us in every way, including in our suffering and in our pain. So with the suffering of a corrupted world, so for the first time recorded in Scripture, the God of the universe suffered with His creation. He voluntarily entered into the suffering. The word for grieve is a word used of an abandoned wife in Isaiah. Like an abandoned wife, destroyed to her core, I grieve for my creation. But he makes a way of redemption. So if it makes you sick, the thought that God would condemn the earth, that he would judge the earth in that way, if it makes you want to vomit, that he would cut the earth down like that, you have no idea what it does to him. And he knows that ultimately the judgment of the world will lead to its salvation and he will bear the brunt of the judgment. So that leads me to be honest with myself. Well, what do I see? I see that while God is predisposed to peace, I am predisposed to violence. And you say, wait a minute, I get that. I know what you mean. But I'm not a violent person. You know, we think of violence, we think of what we see on the news, we think of physical violence. But you and I both know that violence takes many, many forms, many of them far more painful than even physical violence. I want to give you a few to consider in our day and age sexual violence. Now, this doesn't only occur when someone forces themselves on another. Sexual violence occurs when sex becomes used for personal pleasure without regard for the other. Remember that? Remember the sin of Cain? To advantage himself at the expense of others? Remember the line of Seth? To disadvantage themselves for the benefit of others? When it becomes used for personal pleasure without regard for the other, it becomes an act of violence. Sex itself is designed to make you literally as vulnerable as you can possibly be physically. And there's a reason for that, and that's because of what it represents It symbolizes something in the created order. It says, I am safe with you. It says, you are safe with me. And it says, the fruit of what 
our sexual intimacy produces is beautiful. It is creative. When sex is practiced in such a way that it requires mitigation against negative consequences, it becomes a form of violence. Vulnerability, which is what sex is about, creates physical and emotional risks, doesn't it? And the fruit of that kind of vulnerability, a child becomes a burden when I use sex for my own gain. A disruption, an unfortunate consequence. When in order to practice sex, I have to protect myself against several negative outcomes, make disclaimers with the other person with regard to emotional damage that this might cause, then it becomes an act of violence. Does that sound familiar? The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took them. The disruption of the created order turning an act of beauty and peace into an act of violence. The next one, emotional violence. I'm not even going to spend much time on this, but you know what I'm talking about. Everybody in this room has been a victim of emotional violence, tearing apart the image of God and a person. And the last one is greed, advantaging yourself at the expense of others. We talked about that. But let me say it in a way that maybe hits home for me and, and maybe some of you. Greed is the utter disregard for the cost of your personal vanity and consumption on the whole balance of the community. It's when I don't care what happens to anyone else, especially those at the bottom who have no way to defend themselves, as long as I get what I want when I want it and as much as I want. Being honest with myself, I know that I am predisposed to violence sexually, emotionally, materially. But what do I do with that? What does God do with that? What does a God of love and peace and justice do about this corruption and suffering? Well, He follows after the pattern of a righteous man. He disadvantages himself, sacrifices his own life, bears the burden of his own righteous judgment for the advantage of others, for the advantage of those he loves. So how do I rest in His grace once I've seen that He's predisposed to peace, I'm predisposed to violence? I see that God's judgment of the world was for the purpose of putting an end to this violence and restoring peace. You know, it's interesting, Noah, we tend to think of him as the Christ figure, right? Because he was the Redeemer, he was the prophesied one, but he really wasn't. He was just faithful. He just did what the Lord asked him to do. It was the ark. It was the ark that prefigured Christ. It was the ark that raised them up over the waters, out of judgment, away from the corruptions of the earth. Noah just got in it. Did you ever consider the state of the earth that it had to be in? Anybody could have gotten in that ark. Anyone could have gotten in that ark with a repentant heart, and nobody did. They didn't say, uh-uh-uh, knock, 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 nails in the door. They didn't get it. They would not relent. They would not repent before their God and walk with Him. The ark was the fruit of Noah's faithfulness and trust in God. And that is what God seeks in you. Faithfulness and trust in His way of redemption, who is Jesus. The fruit of that trust will be peace amidst the storm. So, the last thing we do in our journey 
of personal worship and this rhythm of grace as we receive his wisdom and we do what it says. So what do we do? I want to give you a little, a little exercise this week. I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. First, where are you a person of violence? Where do you need to consider that? Uh, simple exercise. First thing I want you to do is listen to yourself. Listen to yourself. Here's what I mean by that. Keep a journal. Do whatever you want this week. Journal all of your negative thoughts, criticisms, critiques, commentaries in a day. And consider this as you do that. Whenever you are thinking about a person and you're, eh, you know, or you're reading your Facebook feed and, eh, you know, and you just, you have these negative thoughts, these negative ideas, and you just, you, you, the moment you're objectifying somebody, write it down and see how often you do that. Wherever, around the water cooler, wherever it is. See how often you do it. Write it down because here's the deal. Understand that without exception, without exception, you're called to love, hope the best for, suffer with, and for every single person you encounter. Now, who does that include? Well, people in front of you, obviously, but it includes people who appear on TV. It includes people who appear in political debates. It includes people uh, in your news feed, on your Facebook page, on your Instagram, on your blog, at the grocery store, in traffic. So listen to yourself. How are you doing? Are you a person of peace or a person of violence? The second thing I want you to do, and this is going to make perfect sense with the first one. It's going to inform the first one. I want you to monitor your diet of peace and violence. What are you taking in? Shows, music, websites, social media, coffee shop, conversations. Are they promoting peace or violence in you? Do they lower your blood pressure? Do they raise it? Do they offer keen observation, wise insight, hopeful solutions, or venomous, cynical, hyperbolic attacks and condemnation? What's your diet? Is it a diet of peace or a diet of violence? I was an advertising major in college. And um, they taught us something I'd never thought of. They said, you know, you tend to think that as the audience of media, you are the customer. But they said that's not true at all. The fact is that the audience of media is the product. The customer is the advertiser. And they sell the advertiser people. So they're going to put on the media whatever they can do to get more and more people of certain targets to sell to the advertisers for more and more money. And guess what they taught us in college were the two things that drew the biggest audience. Sex and violence. Why? Because it's woven into our corrupted DNA. Because it's the story as old as time. It's the battle between good and evil. And we crave it. We lust for it. We have a predisposition toward it. So if you want to do something this week to be a person of peace, listen to yourself. Examine your diet, and for the love of Jesus and for the love of peace, turn off the violence. Demand respectful discourse. We always knock politicians. Shame on us for what we put them through to get elected. They've got their own issues. We've got ours. Turn it off. Find your information in a place that makes keen observations gives full information and is a place of hope. And if you can't find it, maybe somebody in here can start it. Be a person of peace. Let's pray. Lord God,
I am so grateful that this rhythm of grace does not require me to do this heavy lifting and to pull myself up out of the muck and mire, but only to be faithful and walk with you, understanding that my redemption is not from me, it's from my Savior. I thank you, Father, for revealing yourself in glory to me, for exposing my own sin and weaknesses to me, for rushing in with your grace through Jesus, and for giving me a reason to live in this world, in this life, a God to anchor myself to, and a purpose to exist, to bring about peace. Lift up my brothers and sisters in Christ on this journey this week and in this year to come. Make us a people of peace. In Jesus' name, amen.